And this morning we'll be looking specifically at verses 13 through the first part of 18. So let's read just that part together for now. Um, and then we'll be going back and looking at a few verses before to set the context momentarily. But let's read together, beginning there in verse 13. Therefore, Paul says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So, Father, I pray that you would bless our time in the word this morning. Indeed, you already have. Um, Lord, we need to be reminded that with our Bibles open in front of us, you are speaking to us. So we don't need to invite you to speak to us this morning. We just need to invite your spirit to help us to listen to you, uh, to hear from you. Lord, thank you for the gift of your spirit that helps us in this task of rightly uh, dividing your word, rightly interpreting your word, and then um, helping us in the task of applying it to us. And Lord, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We're thankful for the way that you used him to write this message to us. We affirm that all scripture is God breathed. And so we thank you um, for meeting us in your word this morning. God, I pray that you give us ears to hear and help us to respond in a way that would bring honor to you. Uh, so we give you this time and thank you for it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we did a little bit of Bible 101, Bible study 101 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, let's continue the lesson this morning. It won't be as long. Um, whenever we begin to work through a passage and the first word is therefore, what should be the question we ask? What is the therefore therefore? It's exactly right. So whenever we begin to study God's word, we are in danger of taking it out of context if we do not understand the context, especially when there is a contextual clue there. Uh, in the word, therefore, marking a transition, yet it is building upon what has just come before it. And what we see is a little bit of what Gerald walked through with us last week. He gave us more of an overview of this entire passage. Today, we're specifically uh, focusing on this aspect of the armor of God. Uh, but let's see and be reminded of what comes just before this. Now, first, we need to understand that we have just walked through this idea of the household code. You'll remember that I have trouble saying that. So that's why I slowed down. Um, and I don't know about you. But when I hear about the household code and my role in that household, one of the first things that come to mind is spiritual warfare. Anybody with me? I have come to know spiritual warfare much more profoundly as a father and husband when I seek to want or express the desire to lead my family spiritually. Any other men agree with that? You feel that? I have been profoundly... Um, confronted with spiritual warfare when our family sits down to try to have a time of devotion. Anybody else feel me on that? So we understand that as as Paul has highlighted these roles for us and in all of the roles, there's this aspect of submission that already wars against our hearts. Right. So when we walk through this, it's no surprise to me that Paul then turns to speak about spiritual warfare. Now, that is the immediate context that comes before this. But really, he's this is in light of everything that he has written in the letter of Ephesians. Uh, so we need to understand it within that context. But more specifically, right here is just these couple of verses before Ephesians six. 10 through 12. And in there, we need to be reminded this, that when preparing to stand against an enemy and fight, one must first understand who his enemy is. Right. Gerald walked us through this. I won't spend a lot of time walking through this, but look back with me at verses 10 through 12. And let's be reminded of what Paul writes there. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, 
against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there is a lot of information packed in those two short verses about who our enemy is, isn't there? Let's look at some of the words that should pop out at us. First, this idea of schemes, schemes of the devil. Do you know that if you are in Christ, he is a defeated foe? Amen? He cannot destroy someone who is in Christ. Nothing can snatch us out of his hand. So I think that this word schemes is instructive to us, especially as believers. The words that come to my mind is deception, frustration, distraction. These are the objectives that our enemy has when he engages us, when he brings these schemes to us. And in these schemes, he is seeking to frustrate not only us, but the will of God. And he uses schemes to do that. It points to his very nature. He is the father of lies. He is the worker of deception. So we see here that he works in schemes. The next word that pops out to me is the word wrestle. That when we engage in this fight with our enemy and when he engages us, it's not a far off battle where we're shooting things at each other. We wrestle with him. Anybody else feel that? So often when we engage in spiritual warfare, it's this hand to hand combat. And indeed, we will see that Paul will highlight that in the way that he presents the armor to us. We also need to be reminded here that it is not an enemy of flesh and blood in church. We need to be reminded of this often. Because so often we choose to engage flesh and blood as our enemies rather than understanding the spiritual warfare at play. And we need to be careful of that. And I believe Paul speaks to that in the scope of giving us this armor. Finally, he calls these enemies the rulers, the authorities, cosmic powers, Spiritual forces of evil. There's a lot of authority in those words. There's a lot of weight in those words. So I wanted to remind us of a few things this morning. Number one, these powers are more powerful than I am. These powers are more powerful than you are. But they are also already defeated. Right? Listen to what Paul writes to the Colossian church. In chapter two, beginning in verse 13, he says this and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then notice verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them In him, those are completed actions. So our enemy is already defeated. However, in our ongoing struggle here, they are no match for our warrior God. You catch that. They are stronger than me, but they are no match. They are no rival to our warrior God. Fourthly, in him, and that is the operable term here, in him, we already have everything we need to stand against this enemy. We already have everything that we need. And this is why Paul uses this language in verse 10. He says, be strong how? In the Lord and in the power of what? His might. It all points to him. It all points to his authority, his power, his might, his victory. So everything that we understand in this passage is in light of that truth. And so we come to the charge that Paul gives us here in verse 13. And he begins with this command. Take up, take up, take up means to assume Here is one of the correctives, I believe, that the Spirit has worked within me this week concerning this armor. One of the dangers of preaching through a passage like this is how many of you first heard about the armor of God in VBS when you were like five? A lot of hands going up. 
This is one of those passages. We've seen the graphics. We've heard the things we've heard, you know, messages on this. We've heard Bible lessons on this. And so many we carry so many presumptions into this, don't we? So many things that we've heard and accumulated through the years. But for me, for the longest time, I always read this passage as if there is this spiritual armor, but it was over there somewhere. And Paul is telling me not to go into battle without the armor. I need to go and put the armor on. But here's the reality this morning, I believe. That our God is our armor. And we have been united with Christ in salvation. So the truth is, we are already girded up with this armor. Now, maybe you don't need that corrective, but I did. Okay, so what Paul is urging the church to do here is not to go someplace and access the armor and put it on. It is to assume it. It is to reckon or consider that the that the armor that I've been girded with in Christ is real. Now, here's the truth. We are stunted by our physical eyes. Everybody look down and notice what you're wearing this morning, what you chose to wear to church. Um, I want to tell you, church, you look good this morning. Okay. Ladies, you look lovely. I love what you chose to wear to church this morning. Guys, pretty good, okay? Pretty good. We look down, we can see the clothes that we are wearing. We feel them against our skin. We see it. But here's the truth, brothers and sisters. The Spirit gives us spiritual eyes to also be able to look down and realize that He has put on us this armor. And although we can't see it, that armor that we are girded up with in Christ is just as real as the clothing that you wear this morning. We just have to believe that that's true. So what does Paul say? He says, assume it to consider that it's settled that I have this armor on because I am in Christ. Yield myself to this truth. And Paul gives us three things about this armor here in verse 13. First, we see that it is the armor of. Of God. So often I hear this passage spoken of in a way that that somehow seeks to empower us. This this passage is not about personal empowerment. This passage is all about dependency. That we are dependent on the armor that comes from God. Brian Chappell says it this way. He says these weapons against evil are what our God, not our hand, supply. Therefore, we can and must trust our armor. Once again, it's a matter of trusting that that armor is there and that it is effective in this fight. Number two, we are to take up the whole armor. We aren't to just pick up pieces when we need it or assume pieces as we feel like we need it as we engage in spiritual warfare. As we will see as we work through this, the assumption by Paul is that we are to be girded with this armor and aware of it at all times. Every piece, all of it. Always. And some of us know just by recent events how true that is, that we never know when we will become engaged in the battle. So we are to always assume this armor, all of it. Number three, we are to take up the whole armor of God for a purpose. That's what that little word that uh, signifies to us. There is a purpose here and it is a twofold purpose. Look, number one, that you may be able to withstand That you may be able to withstand. This word withstand carries with it the idea of resisting. So when the enemy attacks, we are already girded up and we are able to withstand whatever resistance he brings to us or whatever assault he brings upon us. I think of 1 Peter 5 when Peter writes this, be sober minded. This is a constant awareness. It's a sober mindedness. It's an awareness of not only the reality of our spiritual enemy, but the reality that he is prowling around. Notice what he says. Be sober minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What does he say in verse nine? Resist him. The assumption there by Peter is that we can resist him, not because of our own strength, but because we have everything that we need in Christ. With everything that we need in our warrior God. So his exhortation to them in this passage is to resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. When does Paul say that we would be able to withstand? He says here in the evil day. Most commentators together agree that what Paul is speaking about here is not the everyday spiritual warfare, but when that when that warfare reaches its apex for us. 
That when we are really in the midst of the struggle, but we're also reminded that Paul uses similar language just a little bit earlier in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. He says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are what? The days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So he tells us to take up the armor of God, the whole armor of God, so that first we will be able to withstand our enemy. Number two, he says, and having done all to stand firm. You see, Paul's concern here is that Christians would have a stability in him. His concern is for Christian stability in the face of the opposition of our enemy. He uses this phrase and having done all that carries with it the idea of achievements that have been won in war or in the games. It carries with it the idea of having overcome all. It carries with it the idea of having accomplished all your duty requires. So as you continue to withstand and as you engage and as you gird up this armor, as you do that, it becomes stronger and stronger. Your conviction does in it. And when all that is done, having done all, he says to stand continuously stand. This word means immovable steadfastness in the face of a ruthless foe to stand firm. Do not give up ground. Paul uses similar language again in Colossians two verse five, where he says this to them. He says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and listen and the firmness of your faith in Christ. We need to be reminded of what the context of Colossians is. Paul is addressing not one, not two, but multiple uh, false philosophies and false teachings that are encroaching upon the church there in Colossae. Multiple. That's one of the reasons why I love the book of Colossians so much. If you know me well enough, you know that that may be my favorite book. I love that book because of the similarities it has with our own culture. And I believe so many of the things that Paul says to them and so many of the ways that he encourages them is an encouragement to us. And so Paul, before he really gets into addressing these false philosophies and these false teachings, he says something to them. He says, I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That word firmness is a military term, meaning you have not given up ground. What a beautiful picture. I'm coming to encourage you, but I want to affirm the fact that you have not given up ground. That is who we are in Christ. We are told to stand, to withstand and to stand. And so then he gives us the means by which we are to withstand and to stand. And that is these six pieces of armor in verses 14 through 17. Paul uses the word therefore again as we begin verse 14. Notice what he says. He says, stand, therefore, once again, yield yourself to the reality of this armor that is yours in Christ Jesus, that is yours in your warrior God. Yield to that. Stand, therefore, consider it as settled that you have been girded up in this way. Now, we need to be reminded of a few things. Let's let's be reminded of Paul's context as he writes this letter. Where is Paul as he writes this letter to the Ephesians? He's imprisoned. He's in prison. Listen, Paul is isolated and he is dispossessed. Everything that is Paul's has been taken from him. He is isolated from the church, isolated from brothers and sisters. Now we see that there are occasional visitors to him that bring him encouragement and comfort. But in his his imprisonment, he is isolated, dispossessed. He is also chained to a soldier. So do you think that as Paul is thinking through these things, he has a visual representation right there that he is borrowing from to speak to the church? And I believe that that is maybe one of the reasons why he uses this illustration. It's one that he is well acquainted with. So let's set our interpretive lens for what follows. Number one, we are still speaking of a spiritual reality. Here is one of the problems with classically how I've seen this passage used is that it's used in such a physical way. This is a spiritual reality. We are fighting against a spiritual enemy. We are engaging in spiritual warfare. So the armor that we have is spiritual armor. So Paul is using a physical representation to illustrate a spiritual truth. Number two, we should have in mind our warrior God as the model for this armor and not the Roman soldier. 
Although Paul is pulling from the visual aid of a Roman soldier, what should come to our mind based on the language that he is using, borrowing from the Old Testament, is our warrior God. Now, we've seen the posters associated with VBS and kids Sunday school that all have the Roman soldier up there. That's okay, but that shouldn't be the image that we leave with. See what I'm saying? That we should envisage in our minds our warrior God as we think through this armor. Now, I read for us during our scripture time this passage from Isaiah 59. I could go back and quote this for every part of this armor. I'm not going to do that, but I want it to be in our minds. Okay, be reminded of this part of it. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Paul is borrowing this language that should carry our minds back to understand that first and foremost, this armor represents who our warrior God is. Before it's anything to us, it is him. So number three, we must understand Paul's illustration here in light of our union with Christ, which is our ultimate spiritual reality. And this is where I'm afraid that so often we sell the gospel short. The gospel for so many has has been relegated to just the plan of salvation. And brothers and sisters, that's an aspect of the gospel. But the gospel is so much more. The gospel is this cosmic announcement that Jesus is supreme king of eternity. And the gospel to us is, yes, this is how we are saved in him, but this is also who we are in him. May we not neglect that aspect. The gospel is not just something that happened in the past. The gospel is something that takes place in the past, in the present and in the future. We need to understand that. We must understand Paul's illustration here in light of our union with Christ, which is our ultimate spiritual reality. In light of all of that, Scotty Smith wrote a blog um, not too long ago about this passage. And the blog just contains a prayer. And I love this line from the prayer. Smith prays you speaking to God. You don't just give us armor. You are our armor. You are our righteousness. You are our holiness. You are our redemption. So here's what we need to understand. Our protection as believers is not found in any works that we can do, nor in any strength that we can conjure up, but only in what Christ has done for us and only what Christ is doing in us. Amen. So now we begin to look at these various pieces to this armor. And notice the verb that is here. Once again, that should convey to us the reality of this armor already. Notice the participle that comes next. He doesn't say fasten the belt of truth, does he? He says having fastened the belt of truth. This should bring to mind once again preparation. That discipleship in so many ways is preparation. It is coming to understand what this armor is. It's growing comfortable engaging the enemy in this armor. That's what discipleship is. It's growing deeper in my conviction that this armor is true because the God who stands behind it is true. The salvation that he has brought is real. The hope that I have that he will finish this and complete this work in me is real. The truth that my enemy is already defeated is real. This is what discipleship is. It's not just growing in knowledge about God. It's growing in knowledge of who he is. And so we see that Jesus says in Luke 12, 35, he says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. We are not to take time off as believers. Our enemy does not. So we stay dressed for action. Once again, Peter writes, 1 Peter 1, 13, he says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. That literally means girding up the loins of your mind. Pushing all the clutter out, just like you would pick up the bottom of a tunic and tie it up for war. This is the picture that our minds should look like. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a picture of preparation. So the first aspect to this armor we see here is this belt of truth, having fastened on the belt of truth. This belt for the Roman soldier was extremely important. 
to his uniform and it it fulfilled multiple functions for the uniform. Number one, it actually is that which the loins were girded up okay, with the belt is what girded up the loins. It held the bottom of the tunic up, freeing the soldiers feet and legs to be able to engage and fight. It also held the breastplate in place, which is another part of this armor that we will see in just a moment. Thirdly, it secured the sword to the soldier's side because on this belt was placed the sheath for the sword. And so it was held tight to him. So it wasn't flopping around in the middle of engaging the enemy. Paul tells us that this is the belt of truth. And as we walk through these various elements of the armor, I want us to see two things. First, I want us to see an objective aspect That is uh, what is grounded in the reality of who God is and what he has accomplished for us. So there is a truth that is here that points us to our union with Christ. But there's also a a subjective aspect in that he is calling us to do something. So it's a both and. And scholars have argued which it is. Is this speaking of realities that are already ours in God? Or is it speaking of things that we ought to do? My answer to that is yes. I think it's both. So we're going to look at an objective part and a subjective part for so for this belt of truth. Let's begin with the objective. We see in Ephesians four that uh, verses 20 through 21, Paul writes, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. We know from scripture that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. All truth originates in him. He is the very treasure chest of truth and knowledge. He is truth. So objectively, truth is Christ. And we have been united with him. But subjectively, we are called to walk in truth. Just a few verses later there in Ephesians 4, Paul says this. He says that truth is in Jesus. But then he says in verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. So how do we fight against our enemy? How do we assume or put on or or tighten up this belt of truth? We walk in truth. We are truthful people. We walk in the light of Christ. We walk in the light as he is in the light. We are people of truth. Psalm 51, 6. I love this verse. It says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Once again, only as we abide in truth, does he make us into people of truth. And one of the greatest ways that we can fight against our spiritual enemy is by being people of truth and walking in the truth. And here's the beautiful aspect of this. For the Roman soldier, the belt is what held everything together. And brothers and sisters, I believe that this is true about truth for those of us who are in Christ. That truth is what holds it all together. We must walk as people of truth. The second part of this armor we see here, having put on the breastplate of righteousness for the Roman soldier, of course, the breastplate was very important because it covered all of these vital organs. It covered the area that we are most vulnerable if we are engaging an enemy. Um, So Isaiah 59, if you recall, into the reality of injustice, we see this picture of our warrior God bringing justice and righteousness. So the objective aspect of this is found in Isaiah 61:10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. We cannot create our own righteousness. Righteousness cannot flow from us, from our own hearts. So the Bible tells us that when Christ took our sin on the cross through faith, we became righteousness in Christ. It's what we call imputed righteousness. So an aspect of what it means that we put on the breastplate of righteousness is that we are united with Christ, his righteousness becoming ours. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3, 8 and 9. Paul says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to what he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul points to the reality that Christ's faith or Christ's righteousness has been imputed to him. His righteousness is Christ's righteousness. But in Second Corinthians, He speaks of righteousness as weapons for the right hand and for the left. 
So not only are we joined with Christ and made right in him, but he does a work in us to produce the fruit of righteousness. So to put on this breastplate on one hand is to rest in who we are in Christ, but it's also to move that forward. This is a picture of the righteous pursuing righteousness. We as people who are righteous in Christ should be taking righteousness to the culture. Does that make sense? We live that out. We bear the fruit of it. And it's beautiful here in Ephesians how Paul places truth and righteousness together in a couple of places. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He is producing this within us. He is the basis of our righteousness. His righteousness made ours and then he is producing it through us. Ephesians 5, 7 through 10. Therefore, we do not become partners with them. Speaking of uh, those who are in the dark. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. There it is to walk in truth. Verse nine, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So we are to put on truth. We are to put on righteousness, even as we are united with Christ as the basis of those attributes. Number three, Paul says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace for the Roman soldier, the shoes were very important and for Roman soldiers People knew them, uh, people knew of them because of their shoes. Uh, these shoes were incredibly well made. They were made to be durable. They were, they were made to be fastened tightly and to stay on. They were also made for endurance. They were comfortable enough where they could march or run for long periods of time. But they also contained a cleat-like substance on the underside of the, of the sandals. Uh, some people even said that for some soldiers, they would even put nails on the bottom part. Why? So that when they are engaging their enemy, they are able to stand firm. Their base was 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 well stabilized so that they can engage in the fight and hold their ranks, hold their position. There's a debate here among scholars whether Paul is speaking of the gospel of peace as the foundation for the believer or if he's speaking about the readiness to proclaim the gospel of peace. And there's some good remarks on either side, but I think at the end of the day, that what Paul is mentioning here is the latter of the two, that he's speaking of a readiness to proclaim the gospel of peace. This idea of readiness uh, we see in the Old Testament in Exodus 12, when God is going to deliver his people uh, from Egypt, he says this to them, in this manner you shall eat it, the supper, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, It is the Lord's Passover. Even as they were eating the Passover, they were ready to go anytime they were called to go. It's the same idea for us. We are to have our shoes on, tightened up, ready to go at any moment, stabilized even at our base. And he says readiness to proclaim the gospel of peace. The objective aspect of this is that Jesus is our peace. Do you remember that from Ephesians 2? The gospel is our peace. Paul says back in Ephesians 2, but now in in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he um, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He is our peace. But subjectively, listen to Isaiah 52, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. There's an echo of that in Romans 10 for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We are to be people who are ready to preach the good news. How do we do that? How do we gain this readiness? We do that by growing our roots deeply in the gospel. Deeply in the gospel. We do this by rehearsing the gospel, by preaching it to ourselves. I told some students at Equip earlier this year as we were working through an evangelism course together that I believe that one of the reasons why we fail to proclaim the gospel to others is that we do not proclaim it to ourselves. The good news must be good news to us before we will proclaim it as good news to others. 
And we've become so, uh, so used to just living out of our own strength because it's so easy to do here. We gain readiness to preach the gospel only as we grow in understanding the gospel. So this is what I told them. I said, evangelism is not about just memorizing presentations so that we can share them. Sharing the gospel is learning to speak the language of the gospel. It's learning to see how the gospel speaks to every area of life. We grow in readiness by growing our roots deeply in the gospel so that we are always ready to advance the mission of God. Johannes Blau says this missionary work is like a pair of sandals that have been given to the church in order that it shall set out on the road and keep on going to make known the mystery of the gospel. This is how it is an aspect of this armor. We stand firm against the enemy when we are busy engaging the enemy in the mission of God and building the kingdom. And I believe that we have been given a beautiful picture of this in Ukraine As their country was ravaged by war, I heard stories very early on in that conflict about the seminaries there in Ukraine, one specific seminary. And I heard that as the war was encroaching even to where they were, that the dean of the seminary told all of the students, you can go home. I think it's time maybe we should consider you going back home, you leaving, you fleeing. Go to Hungary, go to Romania, go to one of these other places, flee, go to a different place in Ukraine. Every single student stayed. Every single one. And they not only stayed, they all voluntarily, without being told, moved out of their rooms into hallways, into the library, into uh, the cafeteria. Why? So that they could house refugees who needed a place to live. But it doesn't stop there. They so expected God to bring people to faith who came in needing a place to stay that they were already working and strategizing together how they would how they would plant churches after this conflict ended. That is the beauty of feet that are ready and prepared to proclaim the good news of the gospel. What a beautiful picture that is. They weren't knocked off kilter by this real physical war. They just kept on engaging in the spiritual one because they knew that that one was the one that was really real. And they trusted in their warrior God. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Verse 16, we see the next piece of this armor being the shield of faith. Paul says in all circumstances, once again, reminding us in every circumstance, not just when we feel the battle, but in all circumstances, do what? Take up the shield of faith. Once again, this idea of taking up or taking is receiving or accepting It's there. We don't have to go anywhere to get it. It's there. We just need to assume it and take it up. This shield for the Roman soldier is not a small circular shield like we would maybe be prone to imagine. Uh, Many commentators refer to it as a door over four feet tall, over two feet wide, almost three feet wide. This was a huge shield that the Roman soldiers would carry. And these But these shields were well made, wood inlaid with metal, covered with canvas, covered with other substances. And they tell us that before they went out to battle, they would soak these shields in water. Now, why would why would why would they do that? Because they're designed not only to absorb and deflect arrows and blows. They were also designed to quench fiery arrows that latched onto the outside of the shield. Because even if they could deflect the shield, if it caught fire, that fire could spread and it would be dangerous to the ranks. Paul says that this is the shield of faith. First John 5, 4 through 5 says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? What is faith, brothers and sisters? It's not just a just a willy nilly feeling that everything will work out. That's not what faith is. And if we're not careful, we will allow our culture to define faith for us. It's been co-opted in politics and in so many different areas where faith is just some feeling that everything will work out. Faith that it's all going to work out. It's not about trusting our faith, but about trusting God, who is the object of our faith. You see, faith is a growing and ever deepening conviction in the reality of who God is. 
It is an ever deepening conviction in the reality of the gospel. It's an ever deepening reality into the settled work and power of Christ. It is an ever deepening conviction into the reality of every gospel promise that is ours in Christ. As our conviction becomes forged, as we step out onto these truths, we come to find out that they are true and God is faithful. And our shield of faith becomes more comfortable to use. One commentator says it this way. The question is not how much faith one has, but in whom one has faith. And I love this statement. Get this to take up the shield of faith is to take a deliberate step into the light of God's reality. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. Despite everything that I see, it is a deliberate step into the light of God's reality. That is what faith is. That's what it means to take up the shield of faith. In this specific piece of armor, he tells us why. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Psalm 11:2 says, for behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright heart. You see, brothers and sisters, here's the truth. As our faith grows and our convictions deepen, the shield of faith will do more than merely deflect the darts of the evil one. It will extinguish the flame of deception from spreading. And here's the truth. We are all vulnerable. We will all feel the sting of our enemy's arrows. No matter how many we deflect, there are going to be time when that shield is down. There are going to be times when we are deceived. There are going to be times when we are discouraged. But here's the beauty of our standing in Christ. Is that those darts, even though they may be on fire. If we press into being united with him, it will extinguish the spread of the deception. It keeps us from growing bitter. It keeps us from giving up. It keeps us from losing ground. So what does Paul say? Take up the shield of faith. But we need to hear this. This only happens through deepening relationship through communion. Through communion with God who is our warrior. Only then will these convictions deepen. As our knowing him deepens through relationship and as we actually exercise faith by putting more and more of the weight of our conviction out onto the reality of who God is, we become more and more settled in our hearts and minds concerning the reality that it is God who is our shield. This is exactly what David says in the Psalms. And I want you to listen to the way that he says this. He's not saying something that's a theory. He's making a statement based on what has been proven true. Listen to what he says, Psalm 18, 30. He says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true, proves true, proves true. He has stepped out in faith upon God's faithfulness and God has held his faithfulness up. And he has become more forged in his conviction. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. It's true for me. It can be true for you. Psalm 28, 7 and 8. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts. And with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointing. Why can David say that? Because it's been proven true. He's speaking out of experience that has only solidified his conviction in the reality of who God is. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. So within this objective reality, Paul calls us to the subjective task of taking up the shield of faith. And we live as if it is true. True. And by the way, with the shield, we are told that for the Roman soldier, these shields were not only fashioned to protect the soldiers, but they were most effective when they were in rank together. 
And as they are in rank together, they could form together an almost impenetrable wall. Brothers and sisters, this is a message for us as the church. One commentator put it this way. Take up the shield and don't break rank. Don't break your ranks. This is most effectively used when we use them together. Now, in verse 17, we see the final two pieces of armor. First, he says, take the helmet of salvation. In verse 17, the helmet for the Roman soldier. Of course, we understand why that's important. Would have been made out of uh, bronze or another heavy metal. Uh, In some cases, it would be very heavy and take time to strengthen the neck to be able to wear it effectively. In some cases, these were very ornate, especially as you move into higher ranks. Uh, Paul uses this terminology again in First Thessalonians 5, 8 through 10. And there he adds to this phrase. And I think it's important for us to hear how he does that. Verse 80 says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation. It's not just the helmet of salvation, it's the helmet, uh, the hope of salvation. Verse nine, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, we take this aspect of our armor as we develop deeper conviction of the reality of our salvation. Once again, not just believing what God has done, but what he is doing and what he will do. It's the hope that he who began this work in us will be faithful to complete that work. And when there was no salvation, recall what Isaiah 59 said. He himself took the helmet of salvation and brought salvation for his people. We rest in him as our salvation. And that salvation is the basis for everything. It's the basis of our new standing in him. And on the subjective practicing of resting in the reality that salvation is ours in Christ Jesus. I believe that this can be summarized as Paul does, that we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We're continue to consider how he is continuing to save us as he changes us through the work of his spirit. And here's the truth, thinking about this helmet and this shield. That soldiers would wear certain aspects of their uniform all the time, but they would only they would only put their helmet on and carry their shield when they knew they were going into battle. Paul doesn't say that. We are to have our helmets on all the time and our shields we are to take up all the time because this is an ongoing battle with our spiritual enemy. Finally, number six, Paul says, and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This word for sword here is not speaking of the long javelin that a Roman soldier might use. It's also not talking about the longer sword that may be carried into battle. This is talking about more of a dagger, a very short sword. Uh, So that takes us back to this understanding that we wrestle with these spiritual enemies. This is made for close, hand-to-hand, face-to-face combat. Paul tells us that this is the sword of the spirit. That speaks of the spirit's power. Yes, this is the only offensive weapon that we see among these pieces of armor. It is the sword. And for the believer, there is only one offensive weapon. And it is not to be wielded from afar, but at close range. He goes on to tell us what this sword is. He said, is the word of God. What is the word of God? It's the word of God, right? It's interesting here. That Paul doesn't use the term logos, which he would normally use for word in a more general sense. Instead, he uses the word rhema, which points to spoken word, proclaimed word. So our weapon is the word proclaimed. It's the word voice. Certainly that takes us to this episode in the wilderness between Jesus and Satan. As Satan is bringing temptation against Jesus, how is it that he fights back against the enemy? He speaks the word of God back. I do think that that can be an illustration for us. But, brothers and sisters, listen, this specific phrase is used by Paul most often to speak about the gospel. Once again, I don't think Paul intends for us to see the entire word of God. I think he's once again pointing to the gospel and how we fight against our enemy. Yes, it is the word of God, but it is the proclamation of the gospel and its ongoing work in the believer. And I believe here we need to be reminded of the essence of our mission. One one we can only understand with spiritual eyes. Go back with me to this group of uh, seminary students and professors in Ukraine. What's interesting to me and beautiful about this story is they didn't get caught up in the physical war around them. 
They didn't let the raging physical war around them dictate how they responded. They stayed on mission. They stayed on mission because they understood at the end of the day, they were Jesus people. They were gospel people. They were well aware of the spiritual reality around them. And so they took up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And they were busy about proclaiming the word, the gospel, so that the gospel would continue to advance, even though everybody else was running in the opposite direction. Keener says this, he says, the most strategic means God has provided, has provided us for reversing the direct, the direction of influence. It's for us to bring the good news of peace and salvation to the world. Listen, I love this line. Evangelism is the one element of spiritual warfare that takes back Satan's possessions. Takes back Satan's possessions. So in the midst of this ongoing spiritual war that rages around us, we first need to be need to be intentional to proclaim this gospel to ourselves. We need to be then intentional to proclaim it to brothers and sisters. And then we need to be intentional to proclaim it to the world around us. The question is, are we anchored in the reality of the hope of our salvation? Do we have that ability? Do we have that intentionality? Do we have that desire Finally, we see the manner. I'm not sure that this made it on your notes there, but you can write it in the manner and the manner in which we are to use these means of the armor to follow Paul's charge is the fervency in prayer, fervency in prayer. Notice what he says here. Once again, it's a participle praying. This is not a new command or exhortation, but a participle modifying what has come before it. We are to we are to gird ourselves with this armor. We are to uh, be settled in our conviction of its reality through prayer. That prayer is the way that we do that. Matthew Henry says, I love prayer. It is that which buckles on all the Christians armor. Brian Chappell again says we do not put on the armor of God by trusting in the more vigorous performance of our duties, but by relying on God's provision for our protection. And that is through prayer. So why prayer? Well, first, it is the primary means that we have been given for ongoing and intimate communion with God. It is through prayer that we grow in knowing God relationally. Second, it is only within the context of a growing relationship with God, wherein we grow in our knowledge of God, not just our knowledge about God, that our convictions of what is really real about him are forged. We can only do that through relationship. It is only within the context of prayer that we not only put on and take up this armor, but it is in the context of prayer that we rehearse its use. It is only in this context that we gain confidence in its true ability to protect and preserve us. And only when we gain confidence and comfort in the armor will we become effective in the fight with the armor. My mind kept going back to the scene in the story of David and Goliath. And I don't mean to build a a specific application from that. I just want us to, 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 to steal a snapshot, a picture from that story. If you'll remember, David comes on the scene and he says, I will go out and fight this Philistine. And so they send him to Saul's tent. And so he goes to Saul and he said, I will fight this Philistine. And after some back and forth, Saul finally says, okay, you can go out and find, fight him. And then what does Saul try to give him? Tries to give him his armor. And you remember what it says there, that David put it on, but he noticed that he didn't have the fluidity of motion that he needed. He wasn't familiar with it. He was kind of clumsy in it. It was too big. It didn't really fit him. The truth is, when I think about this picture of our armor, I'm afraid that we are ineffective in spiritual warfare because the armor that is ours in Christ is clumsy to us because we do not gird ourselves up with it. And so what happens? We default to fighting in our own strength. The only way that we will become effective in wielding this armor is as we grow comfortable in it being on us and in our using it. This is discipleship. This is discipleship. As we use it more and more, and once again, it's through prayer that that happens, through this communion with God that it happens. Quote by John Piper. Listen to this. He says, we cannot know what prayer is for until we know that life is war. Life is war 
That's not all it is, but it certainly is that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Listen, uh, prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the power of darkness and unbelief. Listen to this, church. It is not surprising that prayer malfunctions when we try to make it a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. The armor is not just about defense, it's about offense. It has everything to do with who we are in Christ. So remember, church, we have an enemy that is real. We don't want to diminish that. We don't want to... We don't want to Shy away from that. We have an enemy that is real. This enemy is a spiritual enemy. This enemy never rests and is actively prowling. But no matter how much he thrashes about, no matter how much he seeks to destroy, works to deceive, and engages to harm, no matter how many fiery darts he hurls, this enemy is already destroyed. He has already been put to shame. He's been put to open shame. He is already defeated. John Stott says they were defeated at the cross and are now under Christ's feet and ours. So the invisible world in which they attack us and we defend ourselves is the very world in which Christ reigns over them and we reign with him. Next, although these enemies are already defeated, our battle with them is ongoing. But this enemy is no true rival to our God. Our enemy is certainly stronger than we are, but he is absolutely no match for our warrior king. First John 4, 4, John writes, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Next, if you are in Christ, his blood has not only purchased and secured your justification, but it has also purchased in full your sanctification and your eventual glorification. You will be victorious in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need to anchor our hearts there. Treasure that. Delight in that. Believe that. Finally, he will never leave, nor will he ever abandon those who are his. I want to leave us with 2 Peter 1, 3 through 5, where Peter reminds us of this beautiful truth. Speaking of God, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire for this reason. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Grow deeply into this faith, church. May our convictions be forged in that reality as we step out in faith, testing it to see if it be true. And God will always prove faithful. You bow your heads and close your eyes with me. A few questions to consider as we close together this morning. Can you have this confidence today? This confidence cannot be found in yourself. You cannot stand against this enemy. In fact, the Bible tells us that if we are not in Christ, we belong to this enemy. We are enslaved to him. We are in bondage to him. But Christ came and accomplished everything necessary to satisfy the legal demands of God for us as a substitute so that we can be freed as a ransom by his blood. The only way we can have this confidence is if our faith is in him. Second, are you abiding in him in order to know him? 
Are you abiding in Christ today? We are not to become just completely passive spiritually until the battle rages. This is not a passive picture. We are to be pursuing and girding up this armor at all times. Is your understanding of life being shaped by the spiritual realities all around us or merely through what your physical eyes, heart and mind perceive? Maybe we need to go back to Paul's prayer at the beginning of this letter and ask that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would illuminate the eyes of our hearts to see these spiritual realities. Perhaps that needs to be your prayer this morning. How prepared are you to face the reality of the spiritual warfare raging all around us? Finally, how is your fitness and confidence in the spiritual armor that is yours in Christ? Are you growing in that fitness? Is that growing as your conviction in the reality of God and his word is forged through walking with him and in him daily? God, I pray this morning that as we consider this, Lord, that you would just be clear in the way that you reveal in our hearts through the work of your spirit and how you would have us to respond, God. And I pray that we would be obedient to that. So we thank you for this time. Lord, be with us now in this time of response. God, help us to honor you in the way that we do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.